Good morning, guys. <clears throat> I'm Isaiah with Lighthouse Security, and Pastor Greg asked me to preach this morning. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, your scripture for today, Colossians 2, 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. All right, let's welcome Isaiah down to the teaching platform. <laughs> Thank you, Isaiah. Let's pray. Lord, our, our hearts, as best we can, we want to just present to you and open them up to you, to the work of the Spirit, that we might receive the Word of God, that the Word of God might um, be grafted into us in such a way that our lives would change, would be shaped into the image of Jesus, which is our ultimate destiny. We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our hero, our God. So uh, speak through the scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, before we dive into our passage, I just wanted to... Um, ask if you would be praying for us, and especially for Lighthouse Christian School. And uh, we are in a moment, this month, we have been uh, meeting and praying and strategizing with some very experienced and wise people on how to build strength into our school going into the future. And I told you a month or probably two months ago now that... Uh, uh, the pastors, we're divesting ourselves of school board authority. We have been essentially the functional school board for the last few years. And, um, and honestly, it's, it's more than what we can do. And, um, and so um, we are going to be limited to the spiritual focus, the biblical content, the discipleship. Uh, that we do in this school. And so a new school board is going to be formed. And it says in, uh, I want to say, 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul says, there's no other foundation except that which has been laid. He's talking about Jesus. That's the foundation. So let those who build be careful or be thoughtful about how they build on the foundation of Jesus. And so the idea is that whatever we're going to do, we're all participators in the building of the Big C Church. We're all uh, involved in that greatest of all endeavors. And it looks like a lot of different things, the ministry that you might be involved in and, and so on, or the Christian school that our church has. And so we're to take care how we build means we need to be thoughtful, prayerful, strategic, faithful to the Lord and to his word. And so there's a couple of guys that uh, have been coming out from uh, the east, from, the, from South, I think they're both from South Carolina. Um, Stephen Real and Stephen Novotny uh, have been coming out and giving us guidance. Uh, they, are, they have decades of experience uh, in Christian education between them. They've consulted and helped guide hundreds and hundreds of schools across the nation to become vibrant, strong, um, and long-lasting uh, uh, in their communities. So they're helping us to evaluate strengths and weaknesses and uh, working with us to craft policy and governance that'll take us into the future. So we need your prayers. But we believe that the most fruitful days of Lighthouse Christian School are in the future. And as our culture of this nation, as it drifts into just kind of craziness, um, we need a school <laughs> where kids uh, are going to receive, well, I mean, at the very basic, a rigorous academic education, right? That, that's classic and doesn't, you know, we want 
our students to receive the best education in the valley. But not only that, a robust discipleship experience. So we want to do our best to disciple our students and give them the ability not only to know what they believe, but why. Why do we believe this? And when our students graduate from Lighthouse Christian School, we, we don't want them to go out and lose their faith, like so many kids do when they graduate from high school. We want them to go out and defend their faith and share their faith. And we want LCS to be a place where parents know that their kids are gonna be loved, they're gonna be protected, and not indoctrinated into worldly philosophies like gender studies and woke social justice studies and so forth, the stuff that's so pervasive right now in culture. And so, you know, it's so sad. Kids are being taught that our country, our nation is founded on racism and white supremacy. And yes, race, or, uh, slavery was a thing. Of course it was. A terrible thing that was in the beginning. But my goodness, there's a generation of students that are being taught to hate their country. We, we want LCS to be a place where students will be taught a proper biblical love for their country. It's a biblical thing. It really is. So th this, this might sound controversial to somebody, but if you, if you are a Christian living in the United States, you should love your country, and you should love your country more than you love any other country. So before I get accused of, accused of being jingoistic, um, similarly, if you're a Christian living in Canada, you should love your country, Canada, more than you love any other country. You following me on that? I, I believe that God has called us to love the country that he's placed us in above other countries, to be patriotic in that regard, to be the best citizens we can be of the country that we live in. Doug Wilson, who's a pastor up in Moscow, Idaho, he writes a lot about this kind of thing, but he, he illustrated it this way, and I thought this was good. He says, suppose a man goes into the Hallmark store and, and he buys his mom a Mother's Day card, and, uh, and so he's browsing and he notices another guy in there uh, who chooses a card that says, to the best mother in the world. Does the first guy have the right to knock the card out of the other guy's hand and punch him in the face? Because he's declaring that his mom is the best one in the world? No, because a man who honors his mother as the best in the world knows that another man who's honoring his mother is doing exactly the right thing. Of course you should love your mother and think she's the best mom in the world. And of course you should love your country. Of course you should. Listen, a sane patriot who loves his country understands better than anyone else why another sane patriotic person loves a completely different country. It's the way God designed it to be. A jingoist is a guy who goes and starts a fight in the Hallmark store because the other guy picked the card. You tracking with that? So, young people in the U.S., they are being trained to dishonor and disrespect their country. Christians should be taught to love their country, not at the expense of love for Jesus, but out of love for Jesus. And this is huge. Jesus is our greatest love. He's our all-surpassing love. He's the love we have for him. It surpasses all other loves. And so when Jesus is our greatest all-surpassing love, then all lesser loves, our love for our spouse, love for our family, love for uh, our neighbor, love for ourself, love for our country, will find their rightful place under the all-surpassing love we have for Jesus. It will be ordered. Okay, so pray for Lighthouse Christian School. That's the point of all that. So, back to Colossians. 
So Epaphras was likely the, the pastor there at Colossae, and Epaphras uh, came to faith when he visited Ephesus, as I mentioned last week. Paul was preaching there for, for over th- or close to three years, uh, the best we can tell, in Ephesus. It was the, the place where he spent the most time as a missionary. And Epaphras came to Ephesus, heard Paul preach, uh, gave his life to Jesus, went back to Colossae, and began to share the message that Paul preached, the message of Jesus, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Other people came to Christ in Colossae. A church eventually formed. Epaphras became the leader, the pastor of that church. As time went on, some false, some weird ideas started to filter into that church. And Epaphras was troubled by it, didn't know how to deal with it. So he goes to Rome where Paul is in prison and visits Paul to get some advice. How do we deal with this, Paul? And that's the genesis of how Paul wrote this letter that we have before us this morning. This is Paul's response to the news that he heard from Epaphras about the Colossian Christians. So Paul had never been to Colossae, um, and, but he was greatly troubled to hear that false teaching and false teachers, you know, had kind of infiltrated that church. And by the way, this is not a small issue for us today. False teaching and false teachers are pervasive throughout the world. And so this whole chapter is really going to be digging in to that subject. So four things um, I want to try and get to this morning from our five verses. Number one is Paul's concern for the Christians at Colossae. Verse one, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Laodicea was, uh, oh, not very far away from Colossae at all. Um, and, and so, no doubt, there was a relationship between Colossae and, and Laodicea. But, but he says, I have this struggle for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul never went to Colossae or Laodicea, as far as we know. And so, but he's burdened for these people, for these Christians. He still, he loves them. And he wants them to grow in their faith. The word struggle is from the Greek word agone, and it, we get our word agony from that. Paul is in agony over what's happening in the church and over his concern for the Christians. Paul was very aware of how detrimental and even ruinous that false teaching can be if a Christian embraces it. It can derail you hardcore. It can, it can send your life off into the wilderness in a massive way. It is dangerous. And so Paul agonized, primarily in prayer, we presume, for the Christians in Colossae. Now someone said, a lie is halfway around the world while the truth is still putting its boots on. Anybody heard that that quote before? Who, Who said that? Does anybody... It's attributed to Mark Twain. A lie is halfway around the world before the, boot, uh, the, uh, the truth is even getting its boots on. Now, the interesting thing, the ironic thing, is that Mark Twain never said that. <laughs> Thus, ironically illustrating the truth that a lie travels. <laughs> so, but if everyday sorts of lies travel fast, lies about Jesus travel Doubly as fast. Let, let, me, let me illustrate that. In, 20 years ago, in 2003, a guy named Dan Brown wrote a book based on a conspiracy theory uh, that basically surmised that Leonardo da Vinci embedded codes in his paintings that would lead to the discovery of where the Holy Grail was. Now, the Holy Grail, however, was not a cup, not the cup that Jesus drank out of, but was a trove of documents that allegedly would prove that Jesus Christ married Mary Magdalene and they had children. And their children would become the Merovingian kings of France. And when you look at da Vinci's Last Supper painting, Mary is actually right next to Jesus, you know, this conspiracy says. And so it's a bunch of blasphemous Gnostic hooey is what it is. 
That book was released in 2003. By 2009, it had sold 80 million copies and had been translated into 44 different languages. And people buy into it. They like believe it. Lies fly around the world, especially as they relate to Jesus our Lord. The hunger and the thirst that people have for secret knowledge, to be an insider, an enlightened one, that's what got humanity into trouble in the first place. This is why Gnosticism proliferated and flourished in the first century, and it does so today. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, and it just means knowledge. And so the Gnostics claim to have secret knowledge, knowledge that if you had it, you would be one of the insiders, you would be one of the enlightened ones. Satan has been baiting that hook for 2,000 years or more. Pam and I, uh, we finally did see the Jesus Revolution movie. And uh, Kelsey Grammer did, a, I thought, a pretty good job of playing Pastor Chuck. And Jonathan Rumi, the chosen guy, uh, I thought did a great job of portraying Lonnie Frisbee in the movie. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was kind of nostalgic. It was fun watching the baptisms happen at Pirate's Cove. Pam and I were both baptized in Pirate's Cove back in 1984. And... But here's the amazing thing, the explosive growth of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa that happened in 1970, in those few years of, of the early 70s, was very impressive. But how in the world did one Calvary Chapel proliferate into what's now 2,000 Calvary Chapels? When you're talking about a movement that's primarily young people, like dirty, long hair, hippie young people, how, how does this explosion of a small church into thousands now become thousands of churches across the nation and across the world? Because if, if these young people are going out, which they did, young people like Greg Laurie and my pastor Jeff Johnson and Mike McIntosh and so on. How, if these guys go out, how is that, how is that church going to have any lasting power, <laughs> right? I mean, we were talking crazy hippies, man, and they just got off of drugs, and they're going to go out and plant churches. What's going what's to hold this thing together? Well, If you're familiar with Pastor Chuck's teaching, and I'm sure many of you are, he was big on making sure that your doctrine was sound. That you taught the Bible. You find out what the Bible says. You exegete the Bible. You explain what it's saying to your people. And Paul or Chuck was not afraid to call out false teaching and false teachers by name. And that was imparted to the people who sat under his ministry, these young hippies who got saved. Like, man, it's not cool. You need to be, the phrase back then was, you need to be right on. Man, that pastor, he's so right on. My pastor, Jeff Johnson, his radio program, he called it Sound Doctrine. Jeff was a whacked out hippie. He was overdosing on LSD in Hawaii, thought he was controlling the world with his thoughts. He was, he was wigged out. Pastor Chuck's commitment to scripture and teaching it accurately became the glue that would enable the proliferation of thousands of churches that have lasting power, that are, still, that are still churches today. Titus 2.1 says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So the Bible is God's sanctifying tool to grow us and to mature us, and so we mustn't play with it, manipulate it, twist it, tamper with it, and there's a lot of that that goes on today. And it, it is more common than I think a lot of people really think. 
2 Corinthians 4.2 says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. So, so cunning, meaning to, to get fancy with it and to make it do gymnastics and to, and to, you know, all this crazy stuff. We refuse that, but by the open statement of the truth. So not by trickery and erudite points or whatever, we commend ourselves. So by the open declaration of what the word of God is saying. That's how we commend ourselves. That's our commendation, is we're not playing games with God's word. We're teaching it plainly. Paul is the exemplar of commitment to sound doctrine, so much so that he's agonizing in prayer over the idea that Christians in Colossae and in Laodicea are being pulled away from sound teaching, from from biblical understanding of Jesus and who he is, and they're being drawn into their secret knowledge, and they're being enticed by that. You can get emanations from angels and, and revelations from spirit beings and all this. They're being drawn away. They're in danger. Paul's in agony about it. Well, secondly, number two, the particulars of Paul's prayer. So he gets specific. Verse two, the first part there, that their hearts may be encouraged. Encouragement Paul prays for. The opposite of being encouraged is being discouraged. So courage, most of us have a good concept of what courage is, right? It's inner strength that enables us to stay the course, to do what's right. Therefore, to be discouraged is to be sapped of that inner strength and potentially vulnerable to be throwing, thrown off course. So Paul says, I'm praying and laboring that you would be encouraged, that your heart would be full of courage, comforted and encouraged to stay the course, to stand firm. Sometimes in a desert, a combination of, of hot and cold air and the, the pathway of light from the sun, it forms a mirage. We're all familiar with this dynamic, right? Our eyes and our brain, they think they see water ahead, but there's nothing there. And so there's this mirage that's formed and discouragement can bring us into a spiritual desert. It can bring us into the place where we're getting desperate. We think there's something wrong. We need something. And now we're being tempted to believe things that are not true. A sure evidence that discouragement is creeping into our hearts is that complaints will be coming out of our mouth. That's how you can tell. Complaining is a sign of discouragement. We tend to justify our grumbling and our complaining by pointing, you know, to the problems that we're dealing with. We all have problems. And, and we feel that the problems we have are now, they give us justification to grumble and gripe and complain. And if we have problem, you know, people problems, marriage problems, money problems, church problems, neighbor problems, fallen world problems, discouragement can creep in and complaints will come out. It's as natural as breathing, really, but apparently it's not okay, (laughs) okay? I say apparently because there's like scripture on this. And so it's, it's detrimental from what I can see from the Bible, it's detrimental and sinful. So, so let me give you one, one verse, one example. You guys probably, most of you know this. Philippians 2.14. Do all things without complaining or disputing, which means arguing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation among whom you shine his lights. So, so the idea is that complaining is a blemish. It's a pollutant. It's dirt. 
And, and if we can conduct ourselves without complaining, there's a, there's a shine that we take on. In the midst of people who put out complaints like breathing, right? I mean, that's, that's default human nature. And so, all things without complaining. <laughs> you, know, you read that, at least, I mean, I read that, and, and almost every, after all these years, I, I still go, really? Does you really mean all? It uh, doesn't seem realistic. I mean, it's certainly, Paul has to be being hyperbolic and, and just rhetorical here. He's actually saying, dial down your complaining, dude, a little bit, all right? A couple notches, dial it back. Complaining isn't really that bad in comparison to, you know, like the biggies, right? Well, you Old Testament scholars will know that there's one issue that, more than any other issue, that kept a whole generation from, of people, except for two men, from entering into the promised land. A whole generation of people died in the wilderness. And I'll, I'll just read it to you because... Numbers 14, 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. So say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from, the 20, from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, no one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. Then verse 34, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. All complaining apparently, all complaining is complaining against God. So your complaint against your spouse, against your boss, against your job, against your complaining against God himself. Unbelief is the root of discouragement which manifests itself in complaining. And it comes, it, it keeps us from the promised land. It keeps us from the abundant Christian life, the joyful, grateful, vibrant Christian life. Now, you may be dealing with some really difficult stuff. We're not minimizing, okay, the difficulty that you're in. It's not that. We don't whistle, you know, past the graveyard when it comes to the difficult stuff. But the difficult things are not the root cause of your grumbling. That's not why you're grumbling. There's a deeper root. Christian, you have everything you need to live a vibrant, joyful, grateful Christian life right now, no matter what your circumstances. You lack nothing. We will read in, maybe not next week, but the week after that, Colossians 2.9, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in other words, all of God is in Jesus. Then verse 10, and you have been filled in him. You are, another way of saying that, you are complete in him. So there is nothing lacking in you that would prevent you from being a joyful, grateful, spirit-filled Christian. Nothing. Now, if you blame your circumstance, 
you're just demonstrating unbelief and the complaints that you have are showing that you're discouraged and unbelief and that I don't, I can't make it through this and life is so hard and so on and so on. Again, not to minimize the problems. Problems are problems. You're going to have problems. Some are terrible and painful. But they are not the root of your complaints. Well, we got to move on. Secondly, Paul agonized in prayer for them to be encouraged. But secondly, verse 2, the second phrase, to be knit together in love. Knit together in love. So for this church, that's, again, you know, kind of considering some weird teachings and, you know, encouraged to get into spiritual angelic visitations and all this stuff, there's a prayer for unity. So Paul is saying essentially that the people of the Colossian church, they need to love their church. They need, they need to love the church, big C, but they need to love their church as well. And they need to, and that means loving each other, loving the individuals of our local church. The church is God's plan for the ages, and he doesn't save people and then place them in the Rotary Club. Uh, Jesus didn't say to Peter, I will build my Rotary Club and the gates of hell shall not prevail again. No offense to the Rotary Club. I think it does all, you know, good. But Jesus is building his church. Church. His ecclesia. Called out ones. And so we are a local manifestation of the universal church. And we're to love the universal church, love our local church, which means loving each other. Well, to be knit together, and we gotta move here, gang, so we're gonna move on to number three. The goal of Paul's prayer, the goal of Paul's prayer, verse two, the halfway through, to reach to reach all the riches. Okay, I want you guys to be encouraged. Hearts knit together in love. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and all the treasures of knowledge. Okay, so, so Paul is going, so you need to be encouraged, get strength, get courage inside, stay the course, stand firm, and then knit together in love so that y'all are pursuing Jesus, God's mystery, and he uses that term purposely because for the Gnostics, the false teaching Gnostics, mystery was a big word for them. We've got, we've got secret knowledge, mystery knowledge, that if you go through our teaching, if you go through our, you know, little ritual or whatever, you're going to be, you know, in, brought into the secret mysteries. And Paul says, God's mystery is Christ, in whom is all wisdom and all knowledge. There is no knowledge that is not found in Christ. There is no wisdom that is not found in Jesus. So in other words, you don't need that angelic visitation or that spiritual, you know, spirit revelation or the Hebrew roots go through this ritual, that ceremony to take you to another level. You don't need any of that if you have Jesus. In Jesus, you have all wisdom and knowledge. The, the Library of Congress, I read it this week, just kind of researching for the message this morning. The Library of Congress is the largest library in the world, by far, by the way. There's 164 million items, books, in the Library of Congress in Washington. If you place the bookshelves of the Library of Congress end-to-end, it would stretch for 869 miles of books. There's a lot of knowledge there. But all of the accumulated knowledge of mankind is still a drop in the bucket of the knowledge that exists in Christ our Lord. Jesus is omniscient. 
That means he knows all knowledge. It's found in him. And not only does he have all knowledge, but he has all wisdom. <laughs> wisdom is different than knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to, uh, to act upon knowledge with prudence and virtue and so on. Jesus is our treasure store. So if you have him, you have it all. Therefore, we seek him. We look to him. We trust him. We grow in him. We mature in Christ. He is where we go. It says in Ephesians 4.11 that the Lord gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. You see how unity is found in Christ. We seek Jesus, we worship Jesus, we learn of Jesus, and as we do, we're being united in Jesus. And so we attain to unity, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. So there's the, you know, the, the waves of doctrine, faddish stuff that happens and, you know, doctrinal things and people rally to this thing and there's a big deal about that thing and, and it's off. And people are chasing experience, and so they get caught up in it. That's not maturity, gang. According to Paul, that's immaturity. So he says, rather, here's what we do. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We grow up into Christ, who has all wisdom and knowledge. That's what maturity looks like. He has it all. You don't have to chase knowledge somewhere else. Hebrews 12.3 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of, of God. Be assured of it. Certainty about Jesus is not a sin, despite what the book by that guy said, the sin of certainty. That's hogwash. 1 John 5.13 says, These things we write unto you that you would know that you have eternal life. And the eternal life is in Jesus Christ. That you would know blessed assurance Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Blessed assurance. Do you know that you have eternal life? Last one, we're done. The effect of maturity, the effect of maturity in Jesus is verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith that's in Christ. So I love that. Paul affirms, like, listen, I know you guys are standing firm. You haven't, like... Uh, you know, set sail into heresy land. I, I love that you're, you're holding on to the firmness of your faith in Christ, but, but there's people trying to delude you, and what they say to you is persuasive. It's persuasive. It's, it's plausible. There's a certain logic to it. 
Next week, we'll, we'll dive into some of the current plausible arguments that are being made in, in our culture that, that, if embraced, will undermine a person's faith in Jesus. But Paul recognizes that the Christians in Colossae still have a firm faith in Jesus. That's awesome. That is so good. And by the way, this, this is all over the New Testament. For instance, 1 Peter 5, 8, be so reminded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The devil is prowling around looking for Christians who aren't firm in their faith because the devil wants to have them for lunch. Wants to destroy them and their faith. So how do we deal with the devil? <laughs> well, the Bible tells us, well, the Bible tells us to flee a bunch of stuff. I mean, there's a bunch of exhortations. For instance, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, flee idolatry. 2 Timothy 2, 22, flee youthful passions. 1 Timothy 6, 10, flee love of money, and so on. Flee, a lot of stuff, run away from it. But we're never told in the Bible to flee from the devil. Instead, we're told to resist him. And through Christ, you can. And guess what'll happen if you resist him? James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Humility, that's the conduit, the thing that brings God's grace to us, humility. It will cause us to be firm in our faith and resist the devil. And in resisting, he will flee. And Peter says, remember, there's Christians suffering for their faith all over the world right now as we speak. I'll close with this. In the book, uh, Jesus Freaks, which is kind of a modern version of Fox's Book of Martyrs. But it recounts the story in the 16th, 16th century, Philip II sent the Duke of Alba to Flanders to find Protestants who were studying the Bible. So they're cracking down on uh, people who had Bibles. You know, Gutenberg invented the printing press, and now and with Luther and all the rest, Bibles were being printed and, and all of that. And people who, who were caught with Bibles were hanged or drowned or torn to pieces or whatever. And so a Bible was found. Uh, the Duke of Alba went on a search and uh, he inspected the house of a mayor of a town. I forget the name of the town. But one by one, the family members were questioned about this Bible that was in the house. And everybody said, oh, I don't know anything about the Bible, how it got here. Don't know anything about it. Finally, there was a servant girl in the house and they questioned her and she said this book is mine I'm reading from it and it's more precious to me than anything and so she was sentenced to die by suffocation and she they, they would hollow out uh, a portion of the city wall. She would be tied up and, and put in this, this hollowed out part of the wall. And then the opening of the wall would be bricked over and she would, she would suffocate. And so on the day of her execution, uh, they tried to get her to change her mind. And, and she, she held, she stood firm and she just replied, my savior died for me. I will die for my savior. And the bricks were put on higher and higher. And she was warned over and over again. And she just said, I will be with Jesus. Jesus. 
there are Christians today, or at least people claiming to be Christians, who wouldn't think anything of giving up the Bible, who are giving up the Bible now without even being asked. Firm in your faith. That's where Paul wanted the Colossians to get. And he wants you to be as well. Firm in your faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that right now, as we uh, get ready to go to the table where we are confronted by the God, King, man, who stood firm through the most horrific suffering and death imaginable. That not only do we have Jesus at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, that our faith would be strong. But we have a great cloud of witnesses (laughs) that are packing the bleachers of heaven, that are cheering for us. They've they've run the race. They've crossed the finish line. And they're rooting for us who are still on the battlefield, still running the race, still fighting the fight, that we would stand strong to our final breath. So Lord, steal our spiritual spines. Give us firmness in our faith. Assurance. Lord, would you forgive us of the sin of complaining? And understanding that complaining is really the evidence that we're discouraged, which is coming from the the root sin of unbelief. When we complain, yes, we're discouraged. And yes, we're not believing you. We're not believing what you say. So forgive us, Lord. Wash us clean of that sin that that dirties us and causes our light to dim to a needy world around us. Meet us at the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're invited to make your way to the one, of the one of the communion tables. If you're not a Christian here this morning, um, Pastor Ron's going to share with you briefly about how to become one. Thank you, Pastor Greg. The purpose of communion is to recognize what Jesus did on the cross. And that he said that the work that he did there was finished. And the finished work of God on the cross was to be judged for mankind so that we wouldn't have to be. That it was his blood that was shed that cleanses the sin of our lives. And then he gave up his life. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it up willingly for something that was vitally important. His sin has a consequence, and that consequence is something that man has faced ever since sin entered into life, and it's called death. I know that. My mom died this last week. But you see, there was something marvelous that took place in that moment on Tuesday is I had complete confidence 
about the eternity of my mom at her physical death because her eternal life with Jesus began. See, that's, that's the purpose that Jesus gave up his life to die for, is to live because he rose from the grave three days later. Jesus isn't dead, folks. I've been in the tomb and it was empty. You see, the message of hope is what Jesus did for us on that cross. And that's why we take the bread. It was broken. He was broken for us. And so if you are here today and you have questioned whether or not God loves you, no matter where you've been, let me tell you, there's no sin so deep, there's no darkness so profound that God isn't able to reach in and go further still. And he reaches in to grab you because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are precious to him and his life was the testimony of saying, this is how valuable you are to me. And so if you are here today, I want to invite us to pray with you at this point in time. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for us, for taking the blows of judgment, taking our place because we couldn't pay for our sins. But you, as it's described in your word, you are the propitiation, you're the atoning sacrifice, you're the one who was able, and it's by your blood that we are cleansed. And so Jesus, we ask that you would forgive us and come into our lives to be our Lord and our Savior. Oh, that my hope is not in my works. My hope is in my mighty God who rescued me, who gave up his life and then rose from the grave. My hope is in you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me that much as I invite you in to be my Lord and my Savior. Amen. So Jesus, on the night of his prayer to his death, took the bread and he gave thanks. He gave thanks because he knew what it meant for us. I believe that with all my heart. And he says, you do this in remembrance of me. We do this, believer, in remembrance of what our God did for us. Won't you partake? And he took the cup. The new covenant, the new deal. Better than Eisenhower's. This cup that he took was symbolic of his life being shed for us. The cleansing of man's sin could only come through the shed blood of Christ. Knowing that that's where the power is, right? And so we drink this cup knowing that it was God and only God that could accomplish that for mankind. And so we give him thanks. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Won't you take it?